Four years ago, uh, my daughter was four years old. We lived in Kansas City. And it was my job every morning to take her to preschool. So one particular Friday morning, uh, this will come as no surprise to those of you who know me, we were running late. And I was late getting her to preschool. We drove into the parking lots. Immediately we saw this row of school buses that was lined up outside the front of the school, which was unusual because this school was not a school bus school. Like people just brought their kids in their own cars and whenever the school buses were lined up, it meant something very special was happening. My daughter, even though she was four, knew exactly what those school buses meant. It meant it was field trip day. And my daughter has always loved field trips. She's an adventurer and she just eats it up. And she got so excited when she saw the buses lined up for field trip day. And I was just thankful that we had made it, you know, just, uh, just barely made it in time. As we were getting out of our car and going into the lobby of the school, uh, we noticed that her classmates were already loaded onto the bus, having the best time. And so we rushed into the lobby and I just asked the lady sitting behind the desk, I said, okay, uh, where is my daughter's teacher? Where's Miss Heather? So that we can get her signed up uh, to, to go to this field trip, and, uh, and she said, oh, well, Miss Heather is on the bus already. I said, okay, where are we going? And she said, well, uh, we're going to Chuck E. Cheese. And my daughter has got even more excited because Chuck E. Cheese, you know, it's like catnip for kids. It's like just, it's, they get high on it, you know. I don't understand it. I, I really, really don't get it. But they love it. My daughter loves Chuck E. Cheese. And so she got excited. And I said, okay, uh, so how can I get her signed up with Miss Heather? And she said, well, uh, the doors of the buses have already closed. And I didn't like where that was going. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, they, they open <laughs> too. Like that's what, that's how they're made. They close and they open, and they close and they open. That's their whole purpose of existence, closing and opening. And she said, well, I'm sorry, Mr. Huffman, you're too late. Our policy is that once the doors of the bus close, they cannot open again unless there is an emergency. So immediately I'm thinking of all the ways I can cause an emergency. All of them were illegal. And she said, well, it wouldn't matter anyway because your daughter's not wearing the t-shirt, the field trip t-shirt we require so none of the kids get lost. And I said, well, I'll, I'll buy the t-shirt from you right now. I'll give you a little extra something, you know what I'm saying, like to make sure I get the t-shirt. And she said, well, she didn't, she's not wearing it. We require them to be wearing it when they get here. And I'm just like, is this the twilight zone? I can put it on her. It would take like three seconds and then we can get on the bus. And she said, Mr. Huffman, the doors of the bus are closed. I said, you already told me that. And they open again. And she said, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, Mr. Huffman, rules are rules. You're too late. So my daughter got wind of what was going on and she's looking out the lobby window toward the buses and all her friends' faces are plastered to the windows, looking down at her in just the worst kind of judgment, sticking their tongues out at her and licking the glass and all this. 
She wanted to be there. But because of me and our lack of information, because I didn't do my job, my daughter was condemned to be at preschool all day watching old VeggieTales reruns with the four other kids whose parents didn't love them. <laughs> and that was because of me and the stupid arbitrary rules of the lady behind the desk. And I was filled with rage when I thought about that lady. But for the moment I had to deal with my daughter, right? So I just got down on her level and I just wanted to hug her and she turned and she hugged me back. And y'all parents, you feel my pain, right? Like they, there was some crying going on, man. There were tears, sobs, there was snot everywhere. And that was, that was me, that wasn't my daughter. My daughter, she, she was less upset than I was. You know, I'm just a mess. And what I felt in that moment, you guys, was just this overwhelming sense of righteous indignation at these irrational, unreasonable, arbitrary rules about the buses and the doors closing and no one could really tell me why and the t-shirts and all this stuff. I had so much rage directed toward this woman. It was really hard for me to be a Christian to her in that setting. That's why I don't have the Jesus fish on the back of my car anywhere I go because that, that would not be a good representation when I get angry. But since that time, I have wondered many times if the way I felt toward the lady behind the desk is what unbelievers, non-Christians, people that aren't in churches on Sunday mornings, it's sort of like what they feel toward Christians like me whenever we talk about salvation coming through Christ alone. Whenever we talk about Jesus being the only way to heaven. I wonder if people who don't believe what we believe hear us talking about salvation through Jesus alone and they hear the same kind of arbitrary rules they hear the same kind of, I'm sorry, but not really sorry. Like, I'm, I, if, I wonder if they hear the same kind of arrogance, like, rules are rules. Too bad. You're too late. The doors are closed. I wonder if they feel the same kind of inner burning rage that I felt toward the lady behind the desk. And if I'm honest, the, the, the rage I still feel when I picture her in my mind. It was four years ago. I haven't let it go. You know, it's a good thing I moved cities, right? Like, I'll never see her again. But what's even worse, and what I know about people, many people who are not in churches on Sunday mornings, agnostic types of people, spiritual but not religious people, is that many of them, if not most of them, have moved beyond the state of rage and anger toward Christianity. And they have moved toward a sense of apathy, a whateverism. You know, I don't know about you, I would rather someone be angry at me than apathetic toward me. If your spouse ever becomes apathetic toward you and is no longer angry at you, there's a problem in your marriage. All right? I would rather someone just get angry with me. In our culture, what we have a lot of the time with non-religious people is a sense of apathy toward the church, a sense of apathy toward Christianity, because the stuff that we're saying just doesn't register with them. And uh, they used to get angry about it and not so much anymore. What I want to say today is that if we're going to be a church that has a mission, like the one we have, to 
inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus and love Jesus, we're going to have to figure out what to say about questions like these. All of us, not just me, all of us, are going to have to figure out what it is we really believe and why when it comes to questions like these. Because the arbitrariness of it is not, is not good enough anymore. We can't just get on the bus when the doors are open and see the doors close behind us and go, sorry, you know, we can't just be the ones on the bus pressing our tongues against the glass, you know, the kids standing outside. We don't want to be those Christians. It's not good enough for the mission that we have before us. We have to know what we believe and make sense of it and be able to articulate uh, our response to these questions, questions like these. This is an especially important one because people think, non-Christians think they know what Christians believe about this. Some of you might even think you know what Christians are supposed to believe about this, but I guarantee you it's deeper and it's more rational and well thought out than maybe you've imagined. We're going to dig into this today. Typically with Christians, there are two camps when it comes to this question. Almost across the board, Christians will fall into one of two categories, and they're kind of polar opposites, right? And so you've met both of these Christians I'm about to describe to you. The one over here is kind of the uh, independent church, uh, maybe neo-Calvinist reformed church guy, like uh, this is the this is the soul patch Christian. This over here is the guy... This is the guy who says, of course, of course, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Of course, because Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Case closed. For them, that is a mic drop moment for Jesus. Because for them, what they hear when Jesus says this, even though he doesn't say it quite the way they hear it, what they hear when Jesus says this is that if you do not profess faith and belief in Jesus within the dogmatic framework of the Christian religion, within your years on this earth, in this life, then you are out of luck. You're not invited. Some of them would even say that you were not created for salvation because, because God knows who's going to be saved and who's not. God selects them, pre-selects them, right? Like pre-approval kind of a thing, like you give them the mail, you know. That's group A. Group B, over here, this Christian, this is the nice Christian. This is the Methodist. <laughs> this guy over here, he shaves every day. He goes to work on time. His shirt is always tucked in. This guy over here never wants to offend anyone. So these are the Methodists, most Presbyterians, Lutherans, uh, Episcopalians. These are the guys that say, if you, if you ask them, if you press them about whether Jesus is the only way to heaven, they will say, well, um, Jesus, we read, uh, God is love. And a loving God, I don't think, will send anybody to hell. And so a loving God, you know, all the religious people, has heaven, you know, that kind of a thing. Like, this guy didn't even know what to do with the question because he doesn't, he doesn't really sense any urgency to share Jesus. He just wants to be a polite Christian who can be friends with agnostics and Jewish people and Muslim people out in the city of Houston and have no problem. He, this guy wants everybody else from other religious faiths or no religious faith to think he's a nice guy. And he doesn't judge them, and they're okay, and he's okay, right? Those are kind of the, the two camps. And, and, and both have their merits. But both are based on a feeling. Feelings are the motivation. Because this group over here, this group, this guy, he likes the feeling of being safe and secure in his salvation. He likes the feeling of knowing 
that he's going to heaven and there's nothing you can do about it. There's no question about it. You know, he's going to heaven and some people aren't. You know, it's too bad, but I, I'm in. That's a good feeling for this, this camp. This guy over here likes the feeling of being a respected guy. And yeah, I believe in the teachings of Jesus, but, you know, everybody's okay. All religions, whatever. You know, this guy likes the feeling of being a good citizen in a pluralistic society. And feelings are fine. When it comes to a question like this and articulating a rational response, we have to be cautious about our feelings. Feelings are not always a helpful uh, guide. They're not always a good metric to use in terms of truth because sometimes your feelings can mislead you. For example, if in your relationship with God, God always affirms your feelings. <laughs> God always affirms your convictions. And God makes you feel good about who you're voting for, no matter who you vote for. If God always agrees with everything you say and do, uh, that, that might not be the God of the Bible. That might be some other version of God that you're working on creating for your own life because that God is always in agreement with you. The God of the Bible will not always make you feel good about who you are and what you believe and what you say. God of the Bible will always push and nudge and challenge and urge and beg you to, to grow, to develop, to evolve in your understanding, to go deeper, right? To be convicted of where you've been wrong in the past. That's how the God of the Bible tends to work. And so sometimes feelings are not that reliable, especially in a, in a, with a question like this, which is so volatile and so easily misinterpreted if we just follow our feelings. And this is going to hurt some of your feelings, what I'm about to say. Don't get up and leave. Hang in there with me. But for Christians, if you believe the Bible in any sense, there's really no getting around the notion that salvation comes through Christ alone. For Christians, if you read and appreciate the Bible, unless you just want to throw the Bible out and be a kind of moralistic Christian, uh, there's really no getting around it. And I'm sorry if that offends you or makes you feel bad, but that is, that's just the baseline of this conversation today because it's, it's through, through and through in the New Testament. Jesus himself says numerous times that he is not just a prophet, he is God. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then, you know, the notion that you get to God through Jesus, that, that in itself is even redundant because Jesus is God. So you, you can't really separate or parse out the comfortable parts of this theology. Jesus himself in John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. God's wrath remains on him. And uh, others in the New Testament echo the same sentiment. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy says uh, something similar. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, Jesus Christ. This is just not equivocal stuff here. And don't, don't be mad at the messenger here. This is just basic New Testament theology. And really the, the notion, the question of whether Jesus is the only way to salvation or the only way to God has only recently been up for debate within Christianity. This is a new debate that we're having. And we're having it because of our cultural sensitivity. The world has grown more pluralistic. We're more connected with more people of different religions. And we have come to, we've come to the conclusion that it's unacceptable for us that God would only accept people of a certain religion and throw everyone else you know, to hell. 
for eternity. You know, that's not even for a little while, but like for a eternal punishment, eternal damnation because they didn't profess the same, the, the right belief or they didn't go to the right kind of house of worship. For many of us in our modern understanding, that is unacceptable. And so we have begun this debate and I think some good things have come from it, um, but we have to know that it is new, this debate. It's a new question because it doesn't feel fair, does it? It doesn't feel right that God would do that to billions of people. Okay, so uh, it doesn't feel right in a pluralistic society. That is, uh, that is how I would define our society, especially a city like Houston. We are defined by our pluralism. Pluralism says very simply that most religions are equally valid and equally true. Most religions can get you to heaven equally. That's kind of the mantra of the pluralist. So the pluralist, many of your friends, maybe some of your professors, young people, some of your coworkers, they will be deeply offended if you go to them and say that you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. Maybe you've tried it and got the bruises to show for it, you know, that kind of a thing. You'll fail some college classes if you stick to your conviction that Jesus is the only way to heaven because it's so offensive to the pluralist. And the pluralist will, in, uh, in turn, uh, try and argue in a couple of different ways against our claim of exclusive salvation through Christ. Then we use a couple of different arguments that have been really just logically debunked, but I'll go, I'll walk you through them real quick. The first and maybe most common argument that they will use is something called the argument ad hominem. The argument ad hominem is, is basically the idea that if I can discredit you as a person, then by virtue of your being discredited, your argument will be proven false. I'm kind of muddying the waters here, but basically what they say is the truth of your claims is connected to your own morality. And if I can prove you're a bad person, then the things you say must be bad too. And so if I can prove that you are a hateful, bigoted jerk, then no one will listen to you because the things you say must be false if you are a hateful, bigoted jerk and you are saying those things. And so if you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven and everyone else who doesn't fit into that tiny box of your worldview doesn't get to go to heaven and everyone else goes to hell, that proves you are a hateful, bigoted jerk. And so the things you say must be false. Here's the logical problem. This person has a conundrum because the veracity of a truth claim is not dependent upon the moral character of the person saying it. Truth is independent of our morality. Thank God for that. Truth does not depend on you being a good person. Plenty of good people have believed and said bad things. Plenty of bad people have believed and said good things, true things, right? So truth is truth and it stands apart. So, uh, you know, you, you can't really make this argument without it being turned against you. The person who argues this, I could easily come back and say, okay, so you say that I am a hateful bigot because I think Jesus is the only way to heaven and anyone who believes otherwise is wrong and, and misguided and condemned. So I'm a bad person. I can say to this person who believes this, you know, explain yourself, how did you get come to the conclusion as a pluralist that pluralism is the only right way to believe and see the world, and anyone who doesn't agree with pluralism is wrong or you know, outcast or ostracized in some way. How did you become so convinced? Doesn't that make you a hateful, bigoted jerk, just like you say that I am? The argument itself is not dependent on the person making it. This is a logical fallacy. If you're a Christian in the real world, you'll hear this from time to time. 
Second thing uh, that I hear frequently is uh, something called the genetic fallacy. And the genetic fallacy just says that uh, your beliefs are what they are because of where you were born or how you were born or to whom you were born. You've probably heard this as Christians. You're only a Christian because you were born in 20th century America in the Bible Belt to Christian parents. If you were born in Pakistan, you'd be a Muslim with a whole different worldview. And so your beliefs must be invalid or untrue or you know, finite, those kinds of things. And so the idea is that I will critique where you got your, your beliefs from and do, in doing so, I'll invalidate your beliefs. Obviously, the person that makes this claim has some explaining to do as well because to someone who says that I'm just a Christian because I was born in the Bible Belt in the 20th century America, I can turn around and say, well, you're probably a secular atheist because you were born in the you know, post-Enlightenment white West to probably elitist parents who, who made you eat kale and granola growing up. Like, that's why you're an atheist, and so it must not be true. You, know, you, can, you can turn these arguments, you can turn these arguments around. And, and, and so they've been proven uh, to be uh, lacking in logic uh, time and time again. My apologies to kale enthusiasts in the room. You're not all atheists, just most of you. So... Uh, <laughs> The arguments against our claims fall apart pretty quickly. But lest we get arrogant as Christians, we have some things to answer for too. Because too often Christians have taken delight in being specially chosen, like we're better than anybody else, like we're holier than thou, like we deserve the salvation we've gotten and others don't. Too often we've come at this from the wrong angle with the wrong attitude, kind of full of ourselves, and the world has picked up on that. We've got some things to answer for. Because when people hear Christians say Jesus is the only way, what they hear us saying is we're better than everybody else. We've got it figured out, and I'm so sorry you don't. And, uh, you know, the doors of the bus are closed, and I'm sorry. There's no real good reason why, but you're not invited. You don't belong, and you're too late. Rules are rules. They hear us saying these kind of arbitrary things. And we can do better. We can do so much better. As Christians, there's so much more to say, and I want to spend the rest of our time today debunking some of the hypocritical things we've learned as Christians and going deeper so you will have things to say in your workplace, homes, schools, things like that. For me, it's really, really helpful to break down this question everybody asks, is Jesus the only way to heaven, into three different questions. The three sub-questions are, who is Jesus, what is the way, and what is heaven? I'm going to tag hell onto that too. What's heaven, what's hell? Those are the three questions I think we really should be asking. Because for Christians, if we don't start with who is Jesus, we're not going to make sense of any of this. It's going to sound just dogmatic. Right. So who is Jesus? For us, Jesus is more than just a religious leader. Why? Because he said he is. And all of this depends on whether Jesus is really who he said he is. If Jesus is who he said he is, then all of this is a, a no-brainer. Right? We're banking on, on, on Jesus' legitimacy. Because Jesus said, hey, I'm not just a prophet. Jesus said, I'm not just a guru. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a messenger. Jesus said, I am God incarnate. And this is a different claim. 
This makes Jesus unique, and he stands out among the backdrop of other major leaders of other major world religions. No one else said the things Jesus said, especially when you consider where Jesus ended up on the cross, naked, beaten, bloodied, humiliated, for all the world to see, laid bare under a curse, all the while he said he's God, God dead on a cross. This is a unique claim. Jesus is not the same as other religious leaders. And if he is who he said he is, then, then he's truly unique. And the Christian claim is truly a different claim. Jesus said he is God incarnate, which means not only is he unique, but he is eternal. This is a very important point for Christians because when we talk about the eternal nature of Jesus, we're not just talking about Jesus as a man who lived for 30 plus years in the first century in Judea. We're talking about an eternal presence, an eternal being. We're talking about someone who pre-existed the Christian religion. Okay, so Jesus himself said, I was present at creation. Jesus said, I will be present at the last day of this age. And so when we talk about salvation coming through Christ alone, we cannot make the mistake of switching out Jesus for the Christian religion. We cannot make the mistake of saying that, yes, we believe salvation is through Christ alone. Therefore, we believe that salvation is through the Christian dogmatic set of beliefs alone. Those are two different things. And I'm not discrediting this at all. I believe strongly in this, but Jesus, the eternal being, pre-existed this. This has been around for 2,000 years. Jesus has been around for 14 billion forever, right? So we must separate the person, the eternal person of Jesus from the Christian religion and not make the mistake of becoming so dogmatic that we cut out the majority of people who've ever lived, including those who lived before Jesus walked the earth. Are y'all with me? Very, very important distinction, the eternity of Jesus. Now, all of that said, I must say I believe that Jesus is the clearest in following Jesus in this, in, in this way as the church, as, as Christians, is the clearest, surest path to know salvation in its fullest form in this life and beyond. I've got to say, we still need to retain a sense of urgency about sharing this with the world because this is the best, clearest path. I believe that completely. And so I think we need to retain that kind of urgency because the way he shows us, the way of Jesus sets people free. The way of Jesus learning that we are loved, learning to accept the love of God, accepting the forgiveness of God, being set free to forgive the people who have wronged and hurt us. Jesus says he will know those who have been set free by his grace, by the way that they respond to that grace. He says in Matthew 25, he says, I will know who you are by the way you respond. If I see you feeding the hungry, if I see you visiting the imprisoned, if I see you healing the sick, if I see you taking care of one another, I will know that you are mine because you are responding to the grace I've given you by showing grace to others. This is the way of Christ, and I believe it's the best way to know God and his salvation. So we continue to share Jesus, but, 
but, and this is going to give some of you some hope for your kids and your friends who may not fit into our dogmatic understanding of Christianity, but the Bible allows for the salvation of those who have either never heard of Jesus or have been fed a lacking, bastardized version of the gospel in times and places where the gospel that was preached was not the gospel of Jesus. Are you all with me? The Bible is not me. It's not because it feels good. The Bible allows for this. We call the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the special revelation of Christ. That is the special revelation. It is extraordinary what happened through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are privy to that information, and we should be joyful and grateful every day. But the special revelation is not all there is. Biblically, there's also something called the general revelation of Christ. The general revelation of Christ is God's invitation to the world, to the whole world, through the beauty and wonder and majesty of nature and through the inner workings of the human conscience. Again, this is, I've listed Bible verses in your study guides you can look at. I've got one I'll share with you from Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood by the things he made so that people are without excuse. So it's not about, I never heard of Jesus. It's not about, I was never a Christian or they were never Christians, poor them. God gives everyone a chance. God reaches out to everyone. And we don't believe that this general revelation constitutes salvation apart from Christ. We just believe that because Christ is an eternal figure, an eternal presence, this constitutes uh, the, the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross to those beyond this Christian religious framework. It's a lot of big words. Are you with me? We believe that the, the benefits, the gifts of his atonement and reconciliation are extended to the whole world, even those who never heard of Jesus, because our God is gracious to the ends of the earth and his will is for all people to know his name, his forgiveness, and his love. Regardless of where they spend their Sunday mornings, God speaks to those through his created order and through the human conscience. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, where there really is a way to God, where there really is truth about God, where there is genuine life of God, Christ is there. This week, a mother called myself. She's a member of St. Luke's Methodist, our mother church. And she called because her daughter is in her 20s and she has given up on church. She was wounded somehow by her campus ministry. And she's walking, walked away from church, and she says she has no intentions of coming back. She's too wounded, and her mom keeps inviting her to church because her mom is worried sick. And by the way, young, young people, young adults, y'all need to know that I get these calls from your mamas every week, <laughs> from your worried mamas. And if you get a random check-in from Gio and I, it's probably not the Holy Spirit that led us to you. It's, it's probably your mama. Maybe the Holy Spirit through your mama, right? These are good mamas looking out for their babies. And this mama was worried sick about her, her baby girl. 
And, and she said, I keep inviting her, but all she wants to do on the weekends is go backpacking and camping in the hill country. And she's crying as she said this. And I said, you know, I have, I've never been camping in the hill country. Is it, is it beautiful there? And she said, Pastor Eric, it is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I said, well, you know, you can probably breathe easy, I think. I think God has your daughter right where she needs to be for now. Which is Texas, of course. But <laughs> I, I, th I think I want to make clear that I, do, do I hope that that young woman ends up in a chair in a place like the Story Houston one day, surrounded by people who love her unconditionally and support her and hold her accountable? Do I hope that she grows deeper in her faith through her life in the church? Absolutely. But I believe God can reach whoever he wants to reach. God can save whoever he wants to save. God can speak to whoever he wants to speak to, however he wants to speak to him. And sometimes things like nature and the conscience can be a bridge to the way back home. So we keep sharing Jesus. We don't get so arrogant as to assume that this church or the church is the only vehicle on its way to heaven. What I'm saying is all of this, what, what, what all of this means is, is that, of course, we as Christians believe that Christ is different and Christ is the way to salvation. But it doesn't mean that God is an angry old man who just wants all of his, you know, non-Christian kids to, to get off his lawn. You know, that's somehow the image that we've created of, of God, this crotchety old man who just wants some of his kids. Our God is a father who wants all of his kids to come home. All of us. And again, I'm not saying that because it feels good. It's biblical. I'm going to revisit the passage I, I read earlier from 1 Timothy. I'm going to tell you the rest of it. 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 6. God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom of, say it with me, all people, not just a select few. Now, we Christians, we muddied the waters, don't we? Especially when it comes to heaven and hell, because we've broken down heaven and hell to a nursery rhyme, where heaven is this place in the clouds that you get rewarded for good behavior. The good kids go to heaven and... Bad kids go to hell. It's an eternal timeout, really hot eternal timeout, you know, where some guy in red tights is a pitchfork. You know, it's all this craziness. Like, and we've caricatured heaven and hell, and we've confused people about what we really believe about heaven and hell. Jesus didn't say any of those things. Jesus said heaven is a party, the greatest party you've ever seen. And it goes on and on, and Jesus said, he said this in several of his stories, he said, religious folks are gonna be shocked by the people who join them at the, at the party in heaven, because there's gonna be some bad people in heaven, Jesus said. It's a paraphrase. But it's the good news, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> every, every good party needs some bad people. Like we, uh, you ever, how many of you are looking forward to an eternal party with a bunch of Christians? I'm not. We need to mix it up a little bit. Jesus said we're going to mix it up. 
a little bit. Not only that, he said, but, 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 but in terms of hell, there's going to be some people that, that thought, surely I'm righteous, I'm in heaven. There'll be some Methodist, Presbyterian folks that ends up in the other place. And he said, we're going to be surprised both ways. Most of us think hell kind of works like this. You know, God gives us a certain amount of time to make a decision. When our time runs up, if we hadn't said the right prayer or gone to the right church, then, you know, I'm so sorry the doors are closed and rules are rules. But that is not how Jesus described hell. He described it with a story, a story about a man named Lazarus who was a beggar, poor beggar, and a rich man. Lazarus lived uh, outside the gates of this rich man's house. And they both die about the same time. And the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven where he's there beside Abraham. And this is where the story picks up in Luke chapter 16. So the rich man called to him, to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony with this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that, you, that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Let's stay, Scott, let's stay right there for a second. Okay, I, wanna, I want y'all to see this slide for just a minute. What's so shocking about this story is that the rich man has ended up in hell and he doesn't seem to even know it. Did you see it in the first part of the story? He didn't even ask why he's in hell, or to be released from hell. All he said is, that poor guy up there should bring me water because he's poor and I'm rich. Serve me. Even though you're in heaven, I'm in hell. That doesn't cross his mind. He's blinded. He's oblivious to this. The other thing that's fascinating about this story is the last part of the, 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 the line here. Jesus says that those who want to go from here to there, from heaven to hell, cannot. But then when he talks about those from hell to heaven, he says he doesn't say want to. Like no one who's in hell wants to leave. You see the difference? They just cannot. It's not that, it's not that they want to. The, the rich man is comfortable there relatively speaking, and, 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 and because of his state of mind, he, he doesn't even have a name in the story. Did you catch that? Lazarus, the poor beggar, is named Lazarus, right? It's his real name. The rich man is just named Rich Man because by the time this happens, his whole identity is wrapped up in his richness. That's all he's worked for. That's all he is. That's who he is, Rich Man. His riches own him, and they have branded him and named him. In light of Jesus' words, I am not sure God ever sent anyone to hell. Not even one person has God sent to hell. It seems to me that hell is something people choose. Hell is a choice that people are free to make. And I think what's interesting about it is that it happens really slowly, doesn't it? It happens slowly over time, like an addiction happens. First of all, you find something that you like, like money for the rich man. You find something that you like. And then 
you kind of start to develop an unhealthy attachment to it, and your liking it goes to loving it, right? And then suddenly you love it. And then whatever that thing is, it could be money or it could be your beauty or your image or your reputation or it could be uh, your family or it could be your success in your career. Whatever that it is, it becomes something a little more than it should. And suddenly you need a little more of it and then a little more of it. And then the people that love you, they intervene. Your family and friends, they come in and they say, look, uh, this was fine in the beginning, but this has become too much. And you, instead of listening to them and receiving their love and concern for you, you push them away and you say, no, 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 y'all don't understand me. Y'all are the problem. I'm fine. This is who I am. And so you alienate yourself and you isolate yourself in the midst of whatever that addiction has become. And it devolves and devolves to the point at which everything in your life is about that thing. And that is your idol. That is your God. You don't even need a name anymore because it owns you now. Jesus said, that's what hell is. Some of you know exactly, exactly what I am talking about. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell, unless it's taken care of. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without a self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. God never wanted you to miss it joy. God never intended for you to miss it. God's love for you is eternal and infinite and perfect and unconditional. But it's also a choice, your choice. For love must be reciprocated and love must be chosen. To receive God's love and to love God back is a choice you have to make. And to, to make that choice, you have to stop loving that it, that idol, that you've put at the center of your life. I am begging you. I am begging you as your pastor and your friend. I am begging you to surrender to something other than that idol. I'm begging you to surrender to your relationship with God because I have seen way too many times what happens when we surrender to our idols for too long? The kind of subhuman forms of existence we take on whenever our idols take our whole identity from us. The kinds of havoc that we wreak on our families, our friendships, our careers, our life with God. Whenever we bow to an idol for a little bit too long, I am begging you to reconsider the choices you've made to this point. The addictions that you might be wrapped up in, whatever those may be. Because God has a better plan for your life. God has a better way. I believe it's the way of Jesus. And I believe that way will bring you joy. And that relationship is the only one that will bring all of your other relationships more joy.
As hard as it is, some of you are fighting it right now. I feel it in the room. You're fighting it. You're thinking, it's not me. It's someone else. The hard part is saying no to the things you've been bowing to. Say no to those things. Just today. Say yes to joy. Yes to freedom. Yes to Jesus. Do something else. I believe his door never closes. I believe it's never too late. And I believe he's ready to welcome you home today. Would you pray with me?